So this is a panel on nationalism and Catholic political thought, and yet it has come to me, the fourth present presenter, uh, to cite for the first time, to mention for the first time, the most prominent Catholic political thinker alive today. I'm, sh I'm shocked it took this long. In his September 1st speech at Independence Hall, President Biden declared <laughs> that America is an idea, the most powerful idea in the history of the world, and it beats in the hearts of the people of this country. It beats in all our hearts. I'm going to set aside for now the dangerous error that America is an idea. I'd like to see what we can salvage from President Biden's remarks, for they contain a profound and illuminating truth that an idea beats in all our hearts. This might at first, especially given the one who spoke it, be mistaken for an infelicity of speech. Surely Biden didn't mean to say that we have ideas beating in our hearts? What would that even mean? Aren't ideas in your head, not your heart? But we have only to turn to Holy Scripture or Homer's epics to hear that the heart has its thoughts. The heart reveals who a man really is, what his quality and what his character, that the heart is what moves a man, impels him to one action rather than another. Plutarch tells us that Lycurgus's laws were not recorded in ink, but on the very hearts of the Spartans. St. Paul tells us that the natural law was written on the hearts of all men by God. When Socrates describes the soul in Plato's Republic, it has three parts. And the central part is thumos, spiritedness, or heart, naturally subordinate to the commands of reason, listening to those commands like a well-trained dog, and thus able to control the lower passions as well as propel the whole person to action. C.S. Lewis, seeking to sum up the traditional Western account of this middle part of man, spoke of the chest, the seat of emotions organized by trained habit into stable sentiments, the seat of ordinate affections and just sentiments, the seat of that form of love or piety that we call patriotism. Significantly for Plato and Lewis, the heart or thumos or spiritedness was that by which a man might be courageous, by which he might rule his passions and thus become capable of ruling others. Plato and Lewis alike treat the heart in connection to human excellence generally, as well as manliness in particular. Lewis's treatment of the chest in Abolition of Man comes to cite as a defense of the reasonableness of patriotic devotion, service to the nation, even unto death on the battlefield. The well-cultivated heart attaches a citizen to his country, rendering him confident in its goodness and dutiful in its service. Whatever the precise status of the heart in a proper philosophical analysis of the human person, we can say now that President Biden was onto something when he spoke of an idea that's, that beats in our hearts. When we consider the American founding, as I will now do, we find the most, that the most astute observers emphasize the importance not only of the American mind, but also of what we might call the American heart, the spiritedness of 1776. So consider Burke's speech on conciliation with the colonies, delivered in March 1775, which identifies a fierce spirit of liberty as the predominating feature which marks and distinguishes the whole of the American character. Also notable in this speech is that Burke traces this love of freedom to a battery of particular causes in the Americans, ethnic, political, religious, socioeconomic, educational, and geographic causes. 
I don't mean to dismiss the significance of philosophy for the American founders. I mean only to note that the possible influence of a political philosophy in founding or ruling a country depends greatly on conditions that pre-exist that philosophy, which in turn shape the heart of the people at large. As an example, consider the famous Captain Levi Preston, Massachusetts Minuteman, who denied ever having heard of Harrington, Sidney, and Locke, and explained why he went to shoot redcoats at Concord in this way, quote, we had always governed ourselves and we always meant to. They didn't mean we should. This common man's habitual attachment to Republican self-government was presupposed, complemented, and refined by the legal and philosophical justifications that the patriot leaders mustered. The founding documents themselves reflect this relationship. The first and unjustly neglected sentence of the Declaration of Independence speaks not, speaks not of individuals, but of peoples, nations, to which individuals belong. Men like Captain Preston are members of a community, and that community has the right to govern itself. Important also is how we get from that first lesser known sentence to the next unforgettable one. The primary cause that impels the Americans to separate from Britain is not one of the particular grievances, nor does the Declaration offer its syllogism of rights, governments, and revolutions in the abstract. Rather, it reads, we hold these truths to be self-evident. Such an act of the mind holding certain statements to be self-evident truths would be fruitless, could not be cited as the first cause that impelled us to independence unless those self-evident truths the American mind corresponded to something in the American heart. Not the ideas themselves in our minds, but we might say the fact that these were ideas beating in our hearts. As the grievances in the Declaration go on to note, we already had a long history of self-government and of opposing with manly firmness, with well-cultivated thumos, the king's invasions on the rights of the people to constitute their own legislatures. But the greatest analysis of the spiritedness of 1776 might belong to James Madison. In Federalist 14, Madison celebrates the manly spirit required to attempt the experiment of an extended republic, an attempt that is the glory of the people of America, a manly spirit in attempting numerous innovations in favor of private rights and public happiness. This Madisonian manliness is a confidence in ourselves, our own good sense, the knowledge of our situation, the lessons of our experience, sufficient to refound and govern ourselves. Then, in Federalist 57, Madison declares that every constitution ought, quote, first to obtain for rulers men who possess the most wisdom to discern and most virtue to pursue. It seems like he's talking about the mind and then talking about the heart. Wisdom to discern and then virtue to pursue the common good of society. And in the next place, to take the most effectual precautions for keeping them virtuous whilst they continue to hold the public trust. It is here in 57 that Madison appeals to a whole series of movements of the heart, duty, gratitude, ambition itself, in Republican rulers to keep them virtuous in their service. As for Republican citizens, he appeals, quote, above all to the vigilant and manly spirit which actuates the people of America, a spirit which nourishes freedom and is in turn nourished by it. It is this vigilant and manly spirit in the people that is their first and final guard of good government. This spirit nourishes freedom in Federalist 57 by keeping the people alert to and firm in their opposition against the oligarchic distortion of law, 
to restrain the House of Representatives from making legal discriminations in favor of themselves and a particular class of society. It is spiritedness in the office holders, duty, gratitude, ambition, as well as spiritedness in the citizens, their vigilant and manly spirit, that orders government towards the common good of society, rather than the particular good of the ruling class and their cronies or clients. So much for what this Madisonian manliness does. Where does it come from? How is it nourished by freedom? John Adams, in his 1783 letter to the Abbé de Mably, describes four institutions, towns, churches, schools, and the militia, quote, the four principal sources of that wisdom in counsel and that skill and bravery in war which have produced the American re Revolution and which I hope will be sacredly preserved as the foundations of a free, happy, and prosperous people. Such institutions form the hearts as well as the minds of men like Captain Preston and Adams himself. I will focus on schools and towns. The schools in Adams's time serve the needs of the concrete local community. Free public schools focus on reading, writing, arithmetic, and the rudiments of Latin and Greek. The first three of these are helpful to every citizen in a republic. Latin and Greek, meanwhile, equip a few for college, and the colleges graduate, quote, masters for the schools, ministers for the churches, practitioners in law and physic, medicine, and magistrates and officers for the government of the country, that is, servants of the material and spiritual needs of the community. Other letters by Adams suggest some promising lines for educational reform today, that it ought to be thoroughly classical, not only in reading Roman historians as guides to wisdom and virtue, as he writes to John Quincy in 1781, but also in approaching the student as a unity of body and soul, rather than a ghost in a machine. As Adams tells his wife Abigail in 1775, speaking of her uh, instruction of their children in his absence, their bodies must be hardened, as well as their souls exalted. Without strength and activity and vigor of body, the brightest mental excellencies will be eclipsed and obscured. A reform of our educational system cannot stop at greater school choice, and a suppression of woke ideology and administrative bloat, as necessary as those steps are. Adams's letters point towards a standard for what a genuinely Republican education establishment would look like. Adams's discussion of towns anticipates Tocqueville's democracy in America. Local self-government leaves to the people the many mundane tasks involved in maintaining the public good. Quoting Adams, the consequence of this institution has been that all the inhabitants have acquired from their infancy a habit of debating, deliberating, and judging of public affairs. Wow, from their infancy, that's kind of early. I want to note here that while Tocqueville describes the township as a natural unit for local governance, Tocqueville emphasizes the rarity and fragility of township freedom of the self-governing municipality. The difficulty in establishing the independence of townships instead of diminishing as nations become enlightened increases with their enlightenment. For Tocqueville, town, township freedom develops almost secretly in the bosom of a half-barbaric society. There is a tension between the rough-and-ready, gitter-done spirit of township freedom and the streamlined, professional, uniform logic of centralized administration. And the stakes here couldn't be higher. Quoting from Tocqueville, the institutions of a township are to freedom, what primary schools are to science. They put it within the reach of the people. They make them taste its peaceful employ and habituate them to making use of it. Without the institution of a township, a nation can give itself free government, but it does not have the spirit of freedom. 
only very rarely will a highly civilized people choose the burdens and long-term blessings of local liberty when the immediate convenience and long-term decay of the administrative state are on offer. That, I think, is how we should understand the ongoing conflict between populism and expert administration. Ordered liberty in the soul and in society arises only through the tension between spiritedness and intelligence. As Aristotle observes in his politics, political liberty is present neither in those barbaric societies dominated by spiritedness without intelligence, nor in those decadent advanced civilizations dominated by intelligence without spiritedness. It's little wonder then that in the ongoing ferment on the American right, we find partisans of both of these extremes. There are those who counsel an unmanly, dispirited acceptance of the administrative state, maybe even on a global scale, hopefully reordered towards the good and the true, rather than its present evil and false ends, but even then neglecting the nobility or beauty found in free citizenship. And on the opposite extreme, there are those who propose the revival of raw masculine vitality, at its most radical, rejecting political order altogether in favor of barbarism or piratical self-sufficiency, a devotion to the godlike nobility or beauty of strength, divorced from the goods of human society and the truths discovered by human reason and revealed to us by God. Fortunately, we're seeing a little bit of evidence of a vigilant and manly spirit still existing among the citizens at large in school board meetings and primary elections, as well as some evidence of the noble duty, gratitude, and ambition of a few rising political leaders. Any restoration of Republican self-government will require us to tear down our despotic bureaucracy while preserving and occupying structures for political liberty. And even, or especially, if such a restoration proves impossible, we will still need that virtue discussed in Federalist 14, the manly spirit of attempting something new without being enthralled to a blind veneration for antiquity, for custom, or for names. Thank you.